welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I've often wished that each of us came with a personalized operating manual, so we wouldn't have to spend so much of our lives trying to figure out our specific needs and idiosyncratic issues. Sure, there would be some commonalities in everyone's manual, like get enough sleep, eat to maintain your energy, don't abuse substances, find people you can trust and be vulnerable with them. But then so many other things would diverge in our individual operating manuals, largely depending on our inherited temperament, especially on the resilience versus neuroticism axis. Each of us falls somewhere on this continuum, which might also be thought of as the dandelion orchid axis. Some of us come into the world fairly bombproof, insensitive in both the positive and negative aspects of this word, and mostly able to handle the various challenges of life. Others, well, they're born as orchids, with a great sensitivity to everything around them. These people feel everything deeply. They're like porous membranes who can't keep the toxins from seeping in. And these folks can grow and bloom beautifully if, if, they're recognized early as being highly sensitive and their various needs can be carefully addressed. Emily was born, alas, without an operating manual, into a family of dandelions. Yet she was an orchid. She was a very sensitive soul, one who felt the world's pain acutely and involuntarily. Her story highlights how grueling it can be to go through life without a clear understanding of what one truly needs. All Emily knew was that the world was too much, and she needed to find a way to turn down the volume on the pain. This led her on a relentless path of self-soothing, with sex and drugs, and finally, a powerfully intoxicating enmeshment with a man who personified this dark triad, this strangely irresistible combination of narcissism, Machiavellianism, and sociopathy. With this man, Emily broke bad and lost herself for a time. This is her story. Um, when I think back at childhood, I had a good childhood. You know, I was I was a happy kid. I was loved. Um, I had two older brothers, significantly older. My mom was 42 when she had me, and I had a 15-year-old brother and a five-year-old brother. Um, and, you know, I was kind of the princess. It was joked about that, you know, I got all the clothes and, and all the patience. <laughs> um, but I was also really sensitive. Um, from a really young time, I remember going to the pool with my family and there was a child there with a disability, very clear. And everybody was a little scared of her. And I remember feeling that person's sadness and that person's outcasted you know, just presence. And I remember I like went over and made friends with this child and we played in the pool and on the ride home, you know, my dad's like, you're so empathetic. Like, I love how you can see that somebody's struggling and, and go and help them and, and lend the friendly hand to, to join them in playing. And so that was great. You know, it was great that he could see the compassion I had, the empathy, but it also was hard because I didn't know how to turn that off. Uh, my sensitivity towards like when my brother didn't want to play with me or if I felt left out. Um, you know, my brother was older. So when he got to high school, my mom and him had a really 
close bond and I always kind of felt left out. Um, and that always just was hard. You know, I felt it probably more than the average person. And like you were saying, you know, children are like flowers and you just kind of have to find the right way to, to parent those flowers, to propagate and, and to make sure that they grow healthily. Um, and I, I think that our parents, my parents' generation, you know, didn't have the time to do that. There was none of that with them too. So a lot of, a lot of the, you need to be different, you need to be stronger was really them trying to prepare me for the world. You know, it was, it was them seeing that I was so delicate in a lot of ways and that, man, the world was going to, was going to hurt you. And so you need to toughen up. And instead, my view of that was like, you are wrong. (laughs) Like you came out with no skin, everything gets inside your heart. And, and that's gonna hurt, you know, and, and I need to change that I need to be different than I am now in order to survive and to be worthy and to be loved. And, and I know that that was never their intention. Um, It's been, you know, I'm a grown woman now. And so I have a child. And so looking back at what my childhood was, I think a lot of it was just they didn't know what to do. They Mm -hmm. did their best. And so I hold no resentment to, you know, some of the harder stories that came out in adolescence. But but I, I was happy. I was happy, but I was confused. Do you think any part of it was cultural? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, my my father is Mexican. And I think just in general, Me Too has come out, uh, into light just recently. And so just the fact that pretty much every woman on the planet has been harassed some way or another. We, not to say that I was seen as like lesser than because my dad always wanted to make sure that like you're not lesser than, you know, you're you're a woman and you can do all these great things. And and it was hard because it was like a conflicting, you know, you're great and wonderful, but you need to change and men are going to view you a certain way. They're going to take advantage of you. You need to be smarter. And And I didn't know how to do that. And I think culturally... Yeah, we have to give our boys also those tools to treat women the right way. It shouldn't just be put on our laps to make sure that guys are treating us properly or that we're viewed smart and intelligent. And mm-hmm. How did that play out, you being an extremely sensitive soul? How did that play out at school and in your relationships? Well, I had a really hard time making friends with girls. Because girls were very confusing for me, as I'm sure they are to a lot of boys. (laughs) Um, So I always felt a lot of anxiety being around other girls. Um, There's a lot of competition, clickiness. You know, I wasn't the coolest kid. I didn't have all the like new shoes or I didn't know like the new song on the radio. You know, I was kind of, I played with dolls till I was like in seventh or eighth grade. And so I was, I was really young in a lot of ways, but I didn't want to be, it was just everything I really was. I just didn't want to be that. So I had a two, two pretty good girlfriends coming into like adolescence who also, I think struggled with similar things. They were more kind of artsy, not really popular. And we just kind of gravitated towards each other. But it started getting pretty toxic around probably seventh grade. One of the girlfriends of mine told me about cutting and how it's like such a release for her. And she feels so great afterwards. And, you know, when she's feeling really messed up that she would do it and it helped. And I remember giving it a try 
And probably seventh grade was when I started cutting. I don't remember how often it was, but I do remember kind of trying to show my parents, but I don't, you know, there wasn't the internet. Like (laughs) going to counseling was for like crazy people. And my daughter for sure is not crazy. Um, So it was kind of swept under the rug. My father being Mexican, he did a lot of work in Mexico um, during my upbringing. We would go to Mexico for two months at a time, which was great. But he would also spend a lot of time going and, and working. And one of those trips, I believe it was eighth grade, I <laughs> there was a kid on the bus who told me to kill myself. He was just a dick. I mean, the guy was just... <laughs> It was just one of those snotty kids who I found out later his dad was abusive. So he was just, you know, playing out a lot of stuff with me and another girl. And he was just a, just mean. And so this one day, you know, I just kind of had it. It was hormones and who knows what else happened at school. But he said, you know, I think you should kill yourself. And I went home and thought about it for a really long time. But thought like, God, yeah, that would... It would take all of this away. Like I wouldn't be a burden on my parents anymore. You know, this would just fix things. And I remember taking a bottle of Tylenol and like immediately being like, oh shit. Like I, I really don't want to (laughs) die, you know? Do you think your parents had any idea what was wrong? Like why you're in so much pain? Why? Well, you know, my dad being a paramedic, he saw a lot of kids in affluent neighborhoods around us committing suicide or trying to commit suicide. So I don't think he understood it, but in a way, you know, especially coming from a a developing country at the time, a third world country, you know, he, he couldn't believe that these kids who have everything could possibly have a problem or be depressed or, you know, like he knew people who had dirt for floors, who, didn't ever really have clean clothes because they washed them in a creek, you know, like didn't have toothbrushes. Like, so for him, it was just unfathomable that I'm giving you this whole life and it's still not enough. And that played into more guilt for me. It was like, yeah, I do see that I have this great life, but I am so hurt inside. And I didn't know how to fix that. There was no, and, and they tried after the, the suicide attempt or whatever you want to call it. We went to see a a therapist and they hated her. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really even remember specifics, but I remember kind of like really wanting someone to talk to, you know, like I was having some really weird thoughts, which I think is probably pretty normal for an adolescent. And it would have been nice to have been able to bounce that off of somebody who's not like judgy or invested in, what your thoughts are, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, my mom being so much older, there was no discussion of sex boundaries. You know, you have sex when you get married. And so any sort of curiosity I had towards that, towards my body, towards someone else's, you know, was just kind of like, we don't go there, um, which was very different from my brother because my brother and my dad had a a lot of conversations about it. My dad was pretty open about his 
<laughs> philandering, if mm-hmm. you will, as a younger man. Um, and I mean, he brought my brother Playboy magazine that turned into a whole thing with his friends. And but I was like, you know, we don't talk about it with you, which was not helpful. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like maybe you you knew you were loved. You had plenty, but what you most needed was to be heard and, and really seen. And and to be like, hey, the world is hard. Here's some tools, mm. you know. And I think, I mean, I think everybody needs tools. But like, what are your specific tools? Like for me, the word boundary was never ever discussed. Never, you know. And and as now an adult, man, I constantly am making boundaries for myself, and it's the only way that I can function. Yeah, you know, well, especially as a you know as an orchid, as a very sensitive soul you need those and you know some people are dandelions and they're just kind of bomb proof and mm-hmm. their boundaries are kind of meaningless but yeah i can see you were a different kid mm-hmm. you, know, you were a little beautiful orchid but you also were needing very sensitive ph and soil and and humidity and sunlight and mm-hmm. maybe they were just treating you kind of like your other siblings right which is how they were probably brought up you know i i heard a very kind of telling story about my grandmother. My my mother was, she was married previously. She got divorced. I have an older brother. Um, And when she came to her mom, so my grandmother, and said, I'm not happy, I, I would want a divorce, my grandmother's response is, well, your happiness isn't important. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me to know how she was brought up, and she'd also tell you there's a lot of love, and but there's, Honestly, the more I research and think about this, there's so much like generational trauma that has just been passed off of just kind of get over it, you know, man up, walk it off, like all of that stuff where, especially when you're developing emotions and you're developing language for emotions and to have someone validate them is so crucial because then maybe I wouldn't be so sensitive now if I had just been validated, you know, as a young child, if, if I had been given those boundaries, those tools, as well as validation in that feeling. Because then I just kind of always was able to be gaslighted by people because it was like, oh, maybe what I'm thinking isn't important or valid or how I'm feeling is being crazy or, you know, all those things that people say to just not give you meaning behind what you're feeling. How did your problems and lack of boundaries, how did that play out in your budding relationships with boys? Um, well, I, <laughs> young as kindergarten, I remember having a crush. <laughs> I was really kind of always boy crazy. Um, I was kind of fascinated by them. I, like I said, I didn't get along with girls, so I had a lot of more guy friends. Um, and as I got older, you know, puberty hits and there's, a lot of curiosity. There's a lot of, you know, just that young feeling of, you know, someone kissing you for the first time or whatever. And I just never knew the boundaries to say no. Um, 
one of my first sexual experiences was in eighth grade, the day before we moved to a small town uh, for me to go to high school. And I remember being, I had heard that other friends of mine had done it. And so it was just kind of like, well, this is what everyone does, you know. Um, But I was definitely not ready for that. I, like I said earlier, I kind of always felt older than I was. Like I knew more things, but I was still really innocent. You know, there was like this part of me that wanted to do everything and be that person that's like, oh, I've done that. But I really was really innocent. And that's when things kind of started to kind of snowball into looking for that validity in how boys viewed me. And yeah, um, losing my virginity, I was 15. 15 is so Mm -hmm. young to be messing around with something that is so powerful, especially for someone who's so sensitive. You know, I think there's a lot of transference that goes on, you know, without even having any idea of that. I remember earlier in the night telling him, you know, I wasn't going to have sex with him. This wasn't going to happen. And he just kind of continued to push the the issue, eventually drinking enough and, and all of that. It ended up happening. It was definitely not enjoyable. It was, but it also felt like nothing kind of. And people kept talking about, God, great sex. And, you know, (laughs) just thinking about 15-year-olds having great sex is like (laughs) disgusting and (laughs) hilarious at the same time. Um, But yeah, but then I just kept trying to search for what people were talking about. And and I just remember one after another, and eventually, I think it had been a year, and I had slept with 40 guys, and some were significantly older. I pretty much stopped counting at that point. But it was just so much shame. The fact that you know my mom waited till marriage, virginity is something that's taken. Like there's all of these these parts of sex, intimacy, and you know, and when you're 15, 16, like you have no understanding of, of what any of that is. Yeah. What and was fueling that? You know, that just, was it a need? Uh, alcohol. I mean, a lot of alcohol. Um, it was, there was never a sober mm-hmm. encounter. Yeah, there was a lot of drinking. It was a small town and people who had graduated 10 years earlier would show up at the parties. You know, it was, it's, yeah. There was a lot of camping. So just being buck wild in the woods and yeah. And it, it, it was a really hard reality to accept, you know, in the time, I think I told you this earlier that like when you're in it, you kind of think like, at least I did. I thought like I'm in power, mm. <laughs> you know, like watching sex in the city. Like I'm Samantha like, <laughs> in the woods I'm, yeah, with my Coors Light. <laughs> Totally. I'm ki- killing it. Totally. I'm killing yeah. it, right? Like I am, I'm a, this panther and I, it, I'm in control. Mm. Definitely was not in control, but didn't, didn't have tools. Didn't realize I could say no. Didn't realize even mid I could say no. You know, it was just making out would lead to one thing and it would lead to another. And that was never like the purpose. I didn't start out just wanting to have sex with people. It just always turned into like, pressure or feeling like I couldn't back out.
when did things start to turn more traumatic with your relationships with boys and men? It was just a lot of using, you know, and I guess that is traumatic in a way. There was there was not like physical abuse. There wasn't um, there wasn't a lot of real connection, to be completely honest. There were a couple of guys that I slept with that we like maybe dated for. Well, what does that even mean? Like we went to dinner one, you know, like so there was really nothing meaningful. There was not a lot of meaningful relationships until I moved back to the city my second semester of senior year. And um, most of my friends were already graduated. So I really didn't care leaving this small town. I was kind of over it. And it was kind of fun to start fresh and new. And I ended up dating the captain of the lacrosse team who also ended up being prom king. And he was fun and so nice. Not super smart. (laughs) But he was just a great guy. And he made me feel good. And he made me feel wanted and safe and and all of those things, which was really helpful to me. Um, But then we went off to college. And he went to New York. Uh, for school, and I moved to an equally smaller, t- smallish town for college, and um, and that's when you know that's when I met him, and and things kind of took a a different, darker turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell me about that darker turn. Um, well, so you know, I I went to Durango with a boyfriend, <laughs> and I was pretty adamant I was going to keep my boyfriend. Um. And when you move into the dorms, I mean, man, it's like summer camp, but you're like 18. (laughs) So there's a lot of excitement. There's meeting new people, um, smoking a lot of weed. I mean, I I guess we didn't talk about that much, but throughout high school, as soon as I was probably after losing my virginity, I smoked weed almost every day. Um, And so I, when I was in college, we smoked a lot. Mm -hmm. Was Um, that more recreational or was that more self-medicating? Oh, man. Well, the first time I smoked weed, I remember just being like, yeah, like, oh, man, I can I can breathe and I don't have to feel the person next to me's energy. You know, it was this barrier, this buffer that and I didn't feel stupid on it. You know, I know there's some people who talk about like memory and whatever. Hopefully that more research comes out and it's maybe just that person. Um, but I never, I felt, never felt like unmotivated. It like, it gave me motivation. It like made me feel, and it still does, you know, I'm still a pretty advocate, pretty big user of, of cannabis, but I, it's one of my tools. Um, and I wish, you know, at the time, probably 15, 16 wasn't the greatest time to start. I'm definitely not advocating for, for young people to start, but for me, it was a, it was just one stepping stone to being able to be in my own body and kind of be okay. Um, so you show up to college with a boyfriend and... <clears throat> meeting a lot of people, a lot of mm-hmm. groups, and there was this group that was kind of starting to form, and this person, Josh, was a part of that. Um, I remember from the very beginning basically saying like, don't fall for him. Like I remember big warning flags in my brain, like not for you, move it along. (laughs) But, um, but he was so intelligent, especially coming from my boyfriend. Who's just this sweet on the surface kind of guy. Here's this person who wants to talk like the Israeli and Palestinian conflict. And let's talk about politics in 
just, I mean, like really big things that I had never really had conversations with people my age about. So it just felt really deep. Felt like he was this guy who was going big places. He wanted to be a doctor. His dad was a doctor. His brother's a lawyer. Comes from a, a well family. Like they're they're very known in their town, and 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 it was kind of it was just really fun, you know. It was I kind of would get these flashes of what our life would be ten years from then, and he'd be a doctor, and we'd have this beautiful house in the suburbs, and beautiful kids, and. And be these like smart people who have smart friends and have smart dinner parties, <laughs> you know. And it was just this this really exciting thing. And as things progressed, uh, I ended up breaking up with my boyfriend, and things started kind of moving a little bit quicker with him, with Josh. And I remember moving out of my dorm room to have my own room, and he basically moved in with me. And at the time, I was like, I'm not sure if I'm ready for this, but he seems to be, so let's give it a try. And that turned into, like, not going to class. He, from the very beginning, I didn't know he was into pills. He didn't really share much of his past. He had said he was kind of, he had gotten in trouble, but he didn't really go into specifics. And he was very, like, elusive with, his bad boyness, mm-hmm. you know, that there was this past and he's getting better and it's, it's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Mysterious fixer-upper uh, yes, with yes, potential. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I remember one time he left, this is probably so planned out too, he left his backpack in my bathroom and begged me not to open it. And I remember opening it, of course, and there was a big book of AA in there with lots of highlights and you know, I had no, I didn't know what the fuck I was looking at, but I also remember being like, "Oh, like he's in recovery, like that's kind of cool." You know, I'd seen intervention. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's like drugstore cowboy, and there's all these like really romantic kind of fucked up movies about this toxicity, but it's it's intoxicating and it's fun and it's that's what love, you know, that's that oxytocin. That's the good stuff. So I remember just kind of being confused, but being open to it. Um, And as time went on, I started seeing that he was popping more pills. I specifically told him I was not about to date a pill popper. He promised me he wasn't. And maybe two weeks after we started like hanging out, like specifically just the two of us hanging out. I went to Denver with some friends and I hadn't told him I was going. I didn't think it was necessary. We were going for the weekend. And the whole drive, he was texting me like, I can't believe you would leave without me. Like, that's so fucked up. You're so, you're terrible. You're so like, just really mean stuff. And I remember telling the people in the car what was happening. And they're like, he's crazy. Like, you guys have known each other two weeks. It's okay that you went to Denver without him. But I remember feeling so guilty. You know, I should have told him. I should have had him come with me. And he knew exactly what to say to get me to to say I'm sorry, you know. And that was really the first of many really horrible fights. And that was nothing compared to, like, what eventually happened and just the drug use that ended up happening. Mm-hmm. Interesting that right away your friends are seeing that something is really toxically 
enmeshed and controlling and creepy. Yeah, I mean, I lost a lot of friends. Yeah. Yeah, from that first month or two. So how did you get pulled into his spiral? Well, I remember I got the flu really bad. And the doctor on campus, I hope he's not there anymore. He's a terrible doctor. But he gives everybody Vicodin. That's what they give you for the flu. (laughs) For real. The ones with the little blue dots in them. Now now he's passing out fentanyl patches. Probably. Hit me up. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um. No, so so I went and I, I got Vicodin. I mean, your body is just aching from head to toe. I smoked a lot of weed, but when you have the flu, you can't, you don't want to smoke. So I remember taking the Vicodin and being like, oh, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> he uh, He used to say it's like being in the pocket of Jesus. And mm. it's like just this complete. That's what Josh would say. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's this complete blanket of love and I mean, every good feeling. Um, and so I remember, you know, going, if it's 30 pills, <laughs> they gave me 35s for the nice. flu. Mm-hmm. And I remember after the 30 that I ended up taking after like a week, he, I, you know, was like, so what else do you have to Josh? You know, I was like, well, that was fun. Let's, let's do it. You know, I see, I see what you've been doing. I get it. Um, and so, yeah, if we he, with, there was another couple of kids that also were super into pills. So there was a lot of exchanging. There was a lot of drives to Denver or to here to get them. Um, Which and, is like seven, eight hours. Yeah. yeah. What if you take an Adderall? It's like 36 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> of course. And 47 cigarettes. <laughs> I know. It's terrible. I know. <laughs> That's a good way to judge distances between uh-huh. towns. It's about forty-five milligrams of Adderall and twenty-eight cigarettes. And uh-huh, and a like shooter. And then, yeah, oh, a bottle of water. We okay. have to have water. Oh, Come true, on, yeah. you're so thirsty on that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, we would do lots of trips. We would come back to his high school friends, who also still did it. <clears throat> I remember one time arriving at one of their houses and just puking all over the lawn. Probably hadn't eaten all day drinking bottles of water and smoking cigarettes. And it was just, oh, man, I, I, I barfed in so many trash cans in public. Like, yeah, it was it was bad, you know, yeah. especially opiates just make you nauseous in general. Yeah. Do you think you knew it was bad then? Like, that, could you, did you have enough insight to see? Well, like that, smoking weed was bad, mm-hmm. you know? So it was all kind of lumped into just like, mm. I just do bad stuff. Okay. Yeah, no, that, there was one time where, I woke up because I had stopped breathing and that was scary. I was the only like kind of close to, to scared I felt. But then the first couple withdrawals was scary too. But other than that, like using, no, it was just like I did bad stuff. Mm-hmm. So that became your identity. Kind of, yeah. 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 It, and it was just so far from who I was, you know, and who I am. I'm, I felt like that was what I needed to do to get hard for the world. You know, I needed to do hard things to be strong. Mm-hmm. And Josh was one of the people that was helping you become 
Harder. Well, not only that, but he was also like, I love your dark side. Oh, he would tell yeah. me like, God, your eyes being all bloodshot is so sexy. Like, I love seeing you fucked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it was, you know, it just gave it that extra romance where it was like we were two messes that were figuring light. I mean, he'd say, we're going to the top of the world. Just you and me. That was that was an often reassurance. Yeah. Wow. To me, yeah. Yeah, I can really identify with you saying about the movies and the romanticization of, of sort of the chaotic, charismatic addict mm-hmm. in that lifestyle. And that part of you knows you're careening into the abyss, but then you also say, "Who? what else would there be to do? Mm-hmm. This is thrilling. Yeah. And this is infinitely better than what I was doing. Yeah. And it's helpful. You know, at the time, it just felt helpful. And I know it broke my parents' heart. I mean, I was much closer to Josh's family than my own at the time. And they were, you know, they were trying to help me out financially. They would try to find me a place to rent and they would give me a budget. And I mean, they were they were just like, I don't know what to do, you know, and it was it was really hard for them too. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, now being on the other side, I feel like I get to really live a, a living amends mm-hmm. to everybody, you know, like that person that I was kind of is reemerging after this fire mm-hmm. <laughs> almost. How did things evolve in the relationship with Josh as you two are, you know, as he's saying, we're heading to the top. <laughs> really, really, I'm literally circling yeah. the toilet. And so, I mean, it, the relationship starts with this really controlling, um, sort of kind of borderline sounding lack of... Oh, boundary. and he would talk about his ex-girlfriends being borderline personality. Mm. His father is, um, mm. is well-versed in mm. mental issues. And um and everyone else was really crazy. Yeah. Um, so did things get more toxic between you two? Between Josh and I. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, he was just it was just really hard to see who I was without him. You know, it just got so we got so enmeshed with each other. You know, from living in our dorm room, we then moved back here. We lived in his mom's basement for a while. We lived in a rental for a while. My parents bought me a condo. He moved into that for a while. Um, and I just didn't know where I ended and he began. We were just completely one identity Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Because clearly he's got boundary issues. And as you said, even as a little girl, you were so sensitive to the world. It's like the two of you just merged into one Mm -hmm. glob. Totally. And in a lot of, I mean, he saw himself in such a, an arrogant light he saw himself as so much better than i mean in a lot of ways he was very intelligent i mean he could even be mensa intelligent like and so that always gave him like a leg up you know on you i find myself being smart but i you know when you're around someone who is so well versed and charismatic and also can obtain a crazy amount of information you know it's hard to not compare yourself to that person especially when they're kind of slowly telling you little by little that they're better and that you know you're you're along for the ride it's really like josh 
became your drug. Mm. You were his drug. You were both deeply dependent on opioids. So you're mm-hmm. just like wrapped up in this sort of compulsive dependence spiral. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just remember sobbing to him multiple times that I needed to stop. It was really expensive. <laughs> when you're spending $40 on a pill, you know, that's, it's insane. And he, I didn't have a job. He was working some construction stuff for cash, but we would pawn my computer often, like put a hold on it and get, you know, 300, 400 bucks. And we would go back and get it out and do it all over again often. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was so gross, you know, like, and stressful, you know, your, your whole day is wrapped around trying to not get sick and just thinking that, you know, my whole trust was in him. It was a lot of blindness on my part. It was a lot of just being so naive and so lost in who I was, what I needed, you know, and it was, there was a lot of hopelessness in those seven years that we were together. Yeah. Is there anybody who could reach you even for moments to sort of say, wake up, look at this, not just addiction spiral you're in, but the, this completely codependent toxic relationship, which is feeding No, the only, only, the only people that really ever brought it up were my parents that, that I'm close to, which was just also like, you're just trying to control me. You know, I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. And it was hard because like, People really liked him. You know, you walk into a doctor's office and the receptionist loves him. They they know each other very well because their son, he and her son went to high school together, you know, all around town. Their name is kind of synonymous with just being kind of cool. Like they're just a cool family. And so it was, you know, I was really just swept up in all of that. It was it was hard to see that. And it was hard to accept that maybe my parents were right. That was really kind of a, a hard realization. Yeah. But it took, I mean, when we we had broken up and decided to go to Peru, um, we were going to like rekindle things. <laughs> it's a really great place to... With a couple ounces two, of cocaine. Two and, drug addicts, yeah. yeah, going to Peru. Um, so we, I went early. I actually went with my dad to Costa Rica first. And the whole time he said he knew, I didn't know. He knew I was going to meet him, meet Josh. Um, but the whole time there was just this thing, you know, this elephant in the room that I'm really sad we didn't really get to talk more about. Um, but then he put me on a plane and I ended up in Peru and I was there about a week before Josh got there. And I had made some friends, you know, you hang out in a hostel and there's a lot of 24 year olds. Everyone's 24, you know, <laughs> and um and it was really fun, and I, I was really excited for them to meet Josh. I thought they were going to love him. You know, he's so smart. <laughs> and he got there, and everybody was like, who is this arrogant asshole? Like, why are you with him? He's super shitty to you. And I that was the first time I was like, oh, you see it. Like, I'm not crazy. I'm not validating my parents because I don't want to. 
but like, oh, maybe there's something like these people don't know us from Adam. They're only seeing me by myself. And now you have entered the picture. And, and probably getting to see how you change mm-hmm. when he shows up. Right. It's yeah. A, it's a different you when, when Josh is there. Yeah. It's like a dimmed light. Mm. You know, I allow him to take the spotlight in a lot of ways. So we, he, you know, I wanted to go see museums. I wanted to go eat Anticucho. I I wanted to go like do the Peru thing. And he just wanted to do, you know, $10 grams of Coke, really good Coke in Peru. You can cut that out. (laughs) That's okay. We don't need to advertise that. Um, But yeah, and I was just like, gross. I was like, gross. You know, I'm finally, I had, I was on Suboxone at the time, which I guess we haven't even talked about Mm -hmm. that. But I was on Suboxone at the time, and I just didn't really want to get buck wild. I did. There was definitely plenty of nights that, you know, were kind of crazy. But overall, like, I wanted to live life. And that was like a glimpse. So I broke up with him, and I went to Cusco alone. And I stayed in Cusco for about a month, which was so much fun. I felt so sure of myself. (laughs) I even got a tattoo. The William Shakespeare quote, to thine own self be true. And I remember like, God, I feel good. No plan when I got home. You know, that's one of the addict's worst thing is to land somewhere and have no plan. You know, no job, no house, no. So I ended up moving back into my, with my parents for a little while till I figured out what I wanted to do. And he called me every day for two weeks. He called me every day. He would leave voicemails like, I just need to hear your voice. I'm just listening to your voicemail to hear it. I miss you. I love you. I can't live without you. And, you know, after after a couple weeks, I was, like, really bored, and I didn't have a lot of prospects. My, my boundaries were getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and eventually I ended up agreeing to see him. And I think we went to his brother's house, and he had on a plate the biggest ball of heroin I'd ever seen, uh, probably three grams, maybe four, which is... I mean, for me, I never really did more than a, like a little line of it, you know. And we smoked heroin pretty much all night. And then for two weeks after that, we hung out every day doing drugs. And a couple weeks after my 25th birthday, we were sitting in a park and smoking heroin at probably 1030, which I think all the parks close at 10 or nine or something like that. And we left the foil out in the car, my car. And we went to the lake to smoke a cigarette and just kind of hang out. And as we're there, we see a police car rolling up and Josh is like, we got to run. I'm like, no, we're not fucking running. (laughs) Like, We're we're not going to get my car is right there. (laughs) Like, let's just walk up. Me never being in trouble before, I'm like, it's fine. We're fine. So we walk up. Literally, the heroin is just sitting on like the dashboard of my car. So he could clearly see it. And he's like, whose car is this? I'm like, oh, it's my car. He's like, well, whose drugs are these? And I 
just wanted to be, you know, the down ass girlfriend who wasn't going to narc on anybody. And I said, it. I don't know. We both just were adamant that we didn't know his backpack was in there full of foil and tubes and all kinds of stuff, paraphernalia. And we both were handcuffed the whole time. He's yelling at me, don't say anything. Don't say anything. The cops are telling him to shut up. He's clearly being real mouthy with them. And they both put us in the back of the cars. A couple minutes later, one of the police come to me, open the back door and say, I know it's his. Just tell me and we'll let you go. And I said, I don't know who it belongs to. And they took me to jail. And, you know, had I said it's his and gotten out, that would have just been so much more fuel for him to make me feel guilty that he went to jail, even though I it was mine too, you know? So I'm really, in a way, I'm really glad that I was arrested. It was terrifying. I was strip searched. <laughs> I was put into like the orange pants and the gross white shirt given like a, you know, a toothbrush that's probably been recycled. Like it was really, and luckily I was really high. <laughs> so I, it didn't quite hit me right away, but I just remember laying, they didn't even have a bed for me. So I had like a little cot on the side and I just remember being like, I cannot believe I'm here. I cannot believe I'm here. like, fuck, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What do you do in this situation? So I spent the night, the next morning I had video court and for the most part, I don't get in trouble. You know, I can kind of fly under the radar. I look innocent and sweet and I can kind of play that. And so in front of the judge, you know, I was telling him I, I volunteer in the, in the town that we live in. I, I teach preschool. Like I'm really, I'm a stand up citizen. And he, he could see right through the bullshit. He just said, if I'm looking at the correct charges that you are being, you know, charged with, you have been doing some bad stuff for a long time. And that was all he said. And it was like, mm. like this is a judge telling me to get my shit together that clearly the path I've been taking has been wrong. And I'm not going to just smile my way out of this possible felony. Um, so that was, that was huge for me to, to have kind of a real reality check, a loss of the romance of the toxic relationship of the the drugs and all of that. And kind of, I had a fork in the road. Mm -hmm. It took me a really long time to get on the right path though. Mm -hmm. Like two forks, the kind of the opioid versus sobriety fork. And then the Josh or no Josh mm -hmm. fork. Totally. He got me out of jail that later that afternoon, picked me up with heroin. And we, mm -hmm. we smoked right after I got out. And I remember, you know, his, his reasoning was, I already have it in my system, so I'm already going to test positive for Just it. Just keep on rolling. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there was a lot of that. You know, I, I faked bronchitis while I was on probation because, well, I probably, I don't know if I should say this, but <laughs> it all turns into morphine in your system. So you can smoke heroin and pretend it's codeine because mm. you can't tell the difference in your system. So I remember smoking heroin, but saying it was codeine cough syrup. And my probation officer is like, I don't know who the fuck you think you are, but you can't take codeine cough syrup while you're on probation for opiate use. <laughs> I don't care if you have a doctor's note. <laughs> this is not something you can do. Like, And, and a, a good friend of mine had actually just died. She, He was also one of her probationees. Mm -hmm. 
So she was not going to let another opiate addiction and another opiate overdose mm-hmm. happen. She was going to do everything she could to make sure that I wasn't fucking up. And that was huge, you know, it was another person in the system being like, I have a key to your life at the end of this. You have to put in the hard work to get that key, though. And I'm not going to take a doctor's note for an opiate <laughs> excuse. <laughs> and I remember being really mad at her. <laughs> I was really That's mad that, at her. That's what a perfect example of that just kind of delusion of specialness Absolutely. that you know, we all have to some degree and addicts have in spades mm. that like, wait, how could the spotlight be on me? Because <laughs> really... No. Yeah. I have a doctor's note. Come on. And I deserve this. I I deserve deserve this. I have bronchitis. (laughs) So, so that, yeah, that was, there was a few, I, I remember going to a Rockies game. I was just starting probation. He picked up drugs, uh, in, in the city. And I remember begging him before we got to the drug dealer, not to stop. I begged him. And then we ended up smoking on the way home. And I just cried. I just sobbed because I just thought I'm never getting out of this. This is my life. I can't get away from him. I can't get away from drugs. You know, I I'm stuck here and it's terrible. even really remember like what exactly happened when he and I kind of stopped hanging out I I think he got on methadone and he would come around my house just so smacked out you know and I I don't know who was giving him methadone but it was a lot and it was gross to be around him because I was like not you were on Suboxone I was on Suboxone Mm. Um, I was on Clonopin as well and um, you know, I was also having a really hard time doing UAs. Like I have a really, it's kind of funny. I have a shy bladder. So it's really hard to pee in front of someone. It's hard to pee like in a bathroom with someone next to me, but let alone like you're holding a wand and someone's right there, you know? So I was able to get a little bit of treatment. They were able to like have someone on the other side of the door. I could have a sound machine. Like <laughs> they were really sweet in helping me with all of that. And when he found out that I was doing well in probation, I was also going to AA meetings, which was amazing. And I'm so grateful for those rooms and those people. I was doing everything right. I was going to hot yoga. I was going to like three meetings a day. I was really trying after, you know, not trying and being kind of called out. And so he emailed my probation officer and said, the hot yoga is to detox. She's faking her UAs behind the door. She's dr- she's dressing like a slut at AA meetings. <laughs> this is what he told your what probation officer. This is what officer. he told my probation officer. He made up an email address and emailed her from mul- like multiple diff- as multiple different people in my life. And when I went in to visit, you know, we had to do a check with her. She's like, we need to talk. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm doing all of the right things. Like what could possibly be wrong? And she's like, 
so I hear you're lying. And I'm like, what? And she reads me the email and instantly, I knew it was him. Mm. Instantly. Just even the way that his cadence in in the email was just... He was trying to destroy you. Mm Mm-hmm. Cause he was mad that we had kind of stopped hanging out. Cause I like, I was, I was dying. Like I, I had to get out or I would be a dead person. Mm-hmm. And he was pissed. He would call me all the time. I have all, I have so many journal entries of, of Josh just not leaving me alone. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. How do you explain that to yourself now that someone who seemingly loved you so deeply was so much part of you in your life. Now it flips and he's, literally trying to ruin your life and to hijack your probation, get you rejailed, basically wreck everything good that's happening in your mm-hmm. life. Well, I had seen him do it to other people and I never thought it would happen to me. But when that light, that face was shown to me, I knew immediately I had, I, we had, I had to stop. I had to stop. It wasn't easy, you know, his his reaching out and everything. But I would think back, I mean, he stole $10,000 from his parents before coming to college. That was one of his bad boy things. He, credit card fraud. He... Yeah, I was thinking bad boy, felonious. Yeah. Or <laughs> completely deranged. Psychopath. Wow. And yeah. ended up going to a rehab center here in, in town and... He had a sexual relationship with his counselor, a woman, and then he sued her. Mm. And it's, it seems like you and I talked a little bit about this in the past, but it seems to me now I never treated him directly, just met him through you. But it seems like he was one of these kind of toxic triad people, sort of narcissism, borderline personality disorder, um, antisocial, kind of sociopath, sort of stirred in kind of the Venn diagram of where those three meet Mm -hmm. that he didn't necessarily meet. Well, he probably met criteria for borderline personality disorder, but he also had these kind of sociopathic and also narcissistic stuff, which made him utterly alluring Mm -hmm. and, you know, unquittable and also like uh, completely venomous Mm -hmm. when, when it flipped. Yeah. It was scary. He loved the Sopranos. And he loved talking about how Tony Soprano was a sociopath using therapy to hone his sociopathic tendencies. That was like kind of cool to him. Um, and I think he he kind of reveled in the fact that he knew he didn't have the same compassion for people that you know normal people do. It was almost kind of like his superpower. I mean, I remember him selling somebody in town acid reducers instead of 20 Oxycontin because they look very similar. Mm. And he, he, his justification was that he wasn't allowing this person to continue his addiction. He was actually helping this person <laughs> wean his addiction. <laughs> so you can see how just his thinking is so mm-hmm. cunning mm-hmm. and... And totally suited in every moment to serve exactly what he needs. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And for a long time, you know, for a long, long time, I was able to be his partner per se. You know, I was, I was his comfort zone. I was a lot of his finances. Um, And then eventually when I tried to stand on my own, 
he just couldn't handle that. That was that was really hard for him. Mm-hmm. And he would do anything to stop it. How did you make the final break from him? Um, so I started dating someone he knew in high school. Ah, <laughs> that seems like that could be dangerous. Uh, yeah, but it was actually perfect because he knew who Josh was from the outside. He was not paying into the illusion of what Josh thought he was or what he played for other people. Um, he, this person was just very kind, um, kind of like my high school sweetheart, you know, just really cared about me and knew I was struggling with this person who he also knew, which was kind of nice in a way. Um, but he was not the person for me. He was, he was very sweet, but I, I wanted and needed more out of the relationship. Um, but he was a a life raft. You know, what about for you, for so many people who, you know, have a series of toxic relationships, that just becomes the norm. And they often unconsciously just seek out people who are going to re-traumatize them, re-victimize them. <clears throat> Again, it's an unconscious process. So it's pretty impressive that you went from Josh to this man, mm-hmm. who you said wasn't necessarily the right person for you, but was kind, mm-hmm. was decent. And, you know, now you're married to a kind, decent person. But how did you do that? Or was it so tied up with addiction that when you could leave addiction behind, then you could start to be in healthy relationships? Because that's a pretty, I mean, you you broke two major addictions. One was to substances, but also to this sort of cycle of men using, abusing you, you losing yourself in men. Even, you know, even as a teenager, you said like, who were you? I mean, you were kind of Mm -hmm. drunk and thought you were in power, but actually you were just on this, treadmill of seeking something you were never going to get yeah i did a lot of journaling i did a lot of aa meetings i did a lot of yoga i did a lot of introspection i remember thinking i want children and i would never have a child in the home that josh and i had it was disgusting you know and when you're younger, I don't know, there's just something about about that bad boy. There's something about those passionate fights where you're, you know, spewing really mean things at each other. But then there's also that love at the end when you make up, right? There's that intense passion. There's just this, it's a roller coaster from, you know, it's bipolar. It's hot. It's cold. It's, it's like withdrawal and then getting high, like as you and Josh would pull apart or it's pain, like pain in your Mm. heart and your soul. So much pain. And then when you come back together, much like when you find your dealer, get your dose, like, oh, this is why, Mm -hmm. this is why we're together. This is why I use this. Yeah, Um, totally. But you had to to break out of that, that what a relationship is, is sort of pain and chaos and coming together in this sort of ecstatic union and then pulling apart and fighting and mm-hmm. I mean, that's a hard thing to break. Well, and I remember, I remember I was going to school in Boulder um, to get my 
teacher certificate. And on the way home, <laughs> that Rayana and Eminem song, this dates me, but um, it's that I love the way you lie. I don't know if you ever heard it, but it's just, it's about like literally get like physically beating each other. But I love it. Like I just, I love this toxic fire that we've created. There's a line that's like, that's what happens when a tornado makes a volcano. And that was, that was us in, mm. a, in so many ways. And so it was really, it was really kind of scary leaving that, but it was also like the season is now over, <laughs> you know, like my mom has a great saying that there's a season for everything. And I really think that I needed all of that to then come to a place of like who I am and like what I want for my family. You know, there was this romantic idea of drug addiction. There was this alluring pull to the dark side because, you know, I grew up in this beautiful white suburban neighborhood and things were cushy. And I was also very sensitive and needed something that I didn't know what. And so finding drug addiction was exciting and it was numbing and it was just all of these things that felt right. But then it was like, now it's not right. You know, and it it wasn't overnight. It wasn't it wasn't like one thing happened. There was just all of these drips in the bucket that, you know, if I'm gonna have kids, if I'm gonna raise children, I'm gonna raise them in a home that is not like this. You know, where where my husband and I can fight, but we're not name calling. We're not screaming at each other. You know, we can have disagreements and we can get angry, but there's no yelling. There's no throwing things there, you know, and <laughs> 22 me would be like, that's so boring, <laughs> you know, and I get that, you know, and I have a lot of compassion for, for anybody who is stuck in that, that vicious cycle because it is intoxicating, you know, quitting heroin and, and, and benzos were fucking hard, but quitting him was, it was, a, it was like a death. It was a death of me. It was a death of what I could have been had I not met him and it was a death of, you know, someone whom I I'm really loved, like loved more than myself in a lot of ways. If you're a fan of Back from the Abyss, please tell a friend or family member or your therapist or a colleague about what's happening here. Back from the Abyss spreads by word of mouth. We rely on you to help us expand our reach, since I can't really get it together to have any meaningful social media presence, mostly because I'd much rather be running and making more episodes for all of you. <laughs>